Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to episode four of In Lockdown with with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is Michelle McTurnan. Hi Michelle, how's things? Hi Kieran, I'm really well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you coping with the corona lockdown? I suppose like everyone else, just kind of um, get to grips with, you know, life indoors, um, trying to do my my one exercise a day and <laughs> you know I've done the Joe Wicks um, most mornings um, I've got the children well I have but I've got little children like my child is actually in bed every morning so I get up do the Joe Wicks and then I do a little bit of yoga and yeah just trying to do what I can get to grips with technology and learning how to connect in different ways so yeah like everyone else I suppose I think what it is is trying to stay motivated like I'm sure you've had things that have been cancelled because of this that um, you've been looking forward to and that aren't happening now. It's trying, for me anyway, it's trying to give myself some goals to kind of, or something to be working towards. Again, with uh, my drama department, I had a good drama teacher. That helped. 
perhaps uh, unfortunately these days you don't have enough drama teachers or drama departments but um yeah i think my my drama teachers encouraged me to um audition for west Ham youth theater right. so that was the best experiences and what was west Ham youth theater like at that time when you were there um i think a lot of life-changing experience um, it certainly was for me I, I joined Westland when I was 15 years old and I didn't leave until I was 21 <laughs> and that was because I had to leave because that was the age yeah. <laughs> otherwise I would have just stayed I loved it I loved that feeling of I, I, I'll be honest with you I wasn't very academic you know I loved English I loved PE I loved art I loved all those arts kind of things you know I wasn't incredibly academic when it came to sort of science and maths and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so finding a lot of people that liked the same thing that I liked was like a revelation to me. I felt like I had a sense of um, belonging, really, and that I think West Glam did that for me. It was just an incredible experience. And you, you didn't go to university or drum school, something like that. Um, but you formed a theatre company called Steel Wasp Theatre Company. Yeah, um, I, yeah, you're right. I didn't go to university because, do you know what? I'll tell you something, Kieran. Is that many, many years ago, um, the question of so what drama school did you go mm. to was kind of like a big oh kind of gut wrenching question to me because. I'd have to go, oh, I, I didn't, I didn't go to drama school. And, and I feel really conscious about that. But then after a couple of years of, of being in the industry and doing quite a bit of work and being okay and seeing that some people that had been to university and had been to drama college sometimes weren't getting the work that they wanted um, kind of made me think, well, you know, there are, there are pluses yeah. and there are, and I think, so yeah, you're right, I didn't, I went to, um, Swansea College. I went to D Cork. Yeah. I did my A levels in theatre studies and dance, and um, and then I thought I'll take a year out. I applied for college. I applied for RADA. <laughs> <laughs> what I applied for, I wasn't encouraged to apply for any others. I and and, yeah. and the only one I wanted to get. I put all my eggs in one basket and basically did audition and didn't get in and just thought, oh right, okay. That's it. Then I'm just going to have to take a year out and move to London anyway, and see if I can get some acting jobs. Yeah. That, that's what I did. I moved to London. Um, I moved in with a friend, and um, and I couldn't get any acting jobs. I couldn't get anywhere, so I ended up working for Heathrow Airport. Right. Um, for a shoe company, and uh, and I was there for four years. Um, it was an odd time. I lived in Windsor. I had a house. Mm. I met a guy, was getting married, and then one day, out of the blue, Nick Evans um, phoned me up um, and said, I'm going to start a theatre company up, I wonder whether you want to come and join me, and at the time I was like, oh, I don't know, I said, I'm living in Windsor, and I work in Heathrow Airport, and I'm with this guy, and instantly as I was saying it, I was thinking, no, what am I doing, this this is not why I came to London. This is not why, you know, so I literally put the phone down and then rang him straight back up and said, give me three months. 
and within three months I'd left my job mm. I finished with a guy and I left Windsor and I moved back oh, to Swansea okay. and um, and yeah Steel Wars Theatre Company started up and and um, it was it was kind of a a kind of a springboard for all of us really all of us had been to I mean Nick had been to college Alison O'Connor had I know Mark Haycock had Rodri Thomas was part of Steel Wars they'd all tried to make their own way um, in London and we all just thought do you know what if it's not happening here we need to go back to our roots we need to go yeah. back and start fresh and that's what we did it was remarkable really what sort of work were you making at that time well it was devised work was the first stuff we were we, done in Ed Thomas and it was Easter from the Gantry and um, that was the first production but then straight after it, we did a devised production, which was called um, Rising Tide, which was kind of, I suppose, loosely um, based on my glee methods. So um, Kevin Madrick, who used to be in West London Theatre, I think he went on to do Trinity College in, in Clerkley after that. But he came on and directed it for us, and we set we did we set it in Swansea, and it was called Rising Tide, as I said, and um, and we we basically devised it. Um, right. Then the next production after that was Simon Harris. Um, we commissioned him then to write a play for us called Garage Land, which was a bit film noir, um, mm. and it, it worked really well. And I think from it we all then got work. We all got mm. work from, it. and it was uh, it was Rising Tide that I was in at the time that Helen Griffin, the actress, Swansea actress, who was recently passed um, unfortunately um, she wrote a play called Flesh and Blood she came to see Rising Tide and asked me to audition for it and um, uh, it was at, at the time it was at the Sherman Theatre but it was touring to the Hampstead Theatre in London mm. and, um, and I got the job and, wow. and then and that's how I, through that I then applied you know applied to a lot of agents and I got an agent so I came through the back door, if you like, yeah. really. You know, I think I kind of, I think I was fiercely ambitious, you know, um, and I just wanted it. I wanted to, I'd been given a second chance at, you know, furthering my, my career, and I, I, I wanted it really, I would have broken, walked over broken glass to, to get where yeah. I wanted to get at the time. I was so ambitious. So I think it was just that kind of passion that drove me, really. I yeah. think if you hadn't have had that drive, that ambition, you wouldn't have succeeded. Yeah, I think, I think, I think because I'd had, I'd done the things that maybe you would do in your gap year, if you like. If I was taking a year out of college, you know, did college, and then moved to London and, and went into this kind of strange world of normal life and not pursuing mm. the career that I wanted to, but always knowing that there was that, that flame in my belly that hadn't gone out, you know, it mm. hadn't. And I think anybody who's had, had any sort of sense of the arts, always creative in any sort of way, that doesn't leave you. And if you're not pursuing it, it eats at you. And you kind of, because mm -hmm. you know that, you're, that it's your vocation in life to do it, you know? And so um, you kind of go, oh my God, I've got to get out of this, you know, this kind of confined, you know, sort of cell that you're in. So you've got to kind of get out. And once you then do it, you go, Oh, I can yeah. 
I, I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So yeah, I think that's what drove me then. Um, you, you um, acted for theatre, film, TV. Is there a different approach that you take for different mediums? Um, yeah, strange question because, well, not strange, it's a good question. But I think the answer is, I think the answer is no. I think if you're going to be, I think you have to be disciplined in whatever you're doing and be professional. Yes, there are different mediums and you work differently, but I think your question is preparing for those, um, those different mediums. And I think when you're preparing, you should always um, do lots of research, I think, one, to, mm. in, in whatever you're doing. So research the project that you're part of, whether that is film, TV or theatre, and know the background to it, not just, you know, your character and and also the person that you're working for and the, the writer and things like that. And you know, the writer, I think always, I've always had this thing in, in my head of the writer is king. That's always been ingrained to me from, you know, even though I hadn't gone to drama college, I think I'm a good observer and watcher. And I think there's lots of actors that I've learned from in saying be true to the writer. Mm. Because the writer has, I think if you keep that, that rule of them really, um, it'll stand you in good stead because the writer has written certain things for a reason. That full stop is there for a reason, that comma's there, that exclamation part, that dot, 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 that pause, that beat, whatever that is, it's there for a reason. Mm. But of course, that depends on who you're working with in whatever medium you're in. You know, if you're with a, a, a director or a writer that will go, oh yeah, 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 I'm not precious about my words, just go for it, you know? You know, if you want to improvise, improvise. And so therefore you go, Oh, okay. I, I'm, I'm freed up a little bit. I can I can move within this dialogue. I can enjoy it. And I can be free in in my approach to it. And again, with the director, you know, the director might go, yeah, yeah, just just go for it in this bit, you know, and just you know use it. Or in that pause, go for it, you know. And that's that that's for, for an actor. That's really really kind of freeing and interesting. Mm. Um, but I think I think as you're preparing things, you should always be kind of, um, you know, you should always be disciplined in going, when I'm first preparing, I should always be aware that, the, that those lines, those words, those beats, those punctuations are there for a reason and, um, and adhere to them really, you know, I think that's, mm. that's my initial approach to anything I do until I'm told otherwise. So practically, do you use the same approach with every character that you that you're preparing for them? Um, I think when you're um, preparing for a character, you need to. I think when you're looking at it, you need to always be asking yourself questions, and so those questions are, um, what are other characters saying about my character? So you're, you're researching through through the, the page, you know, what are they saying about me? So you're building your character up. Um, what do I say about other characters? What does my character say about others? You're, you're learning again about your character and, and kind of what do I say about myself? You know, you're, you're kind of, you're researching your character and constantly asking <coughs> of yourself. Um, and fleshing it out a little bit, you know, and, mm. and that'll come from rehearsal. So 
you know, the writer gives you clues. There are clues within the, the piece that tells you things about your character. And then there are sometimes writers don't give you much at all. <laughs> and they give you nothing, which is kind of okay. That's all right, because you as an actor then have to flesh it out yourself and bring to the table things that maybe are not there. And maybe things that maybe the director might say, try this or try that. Or, yeah. You know, um, and so I think when preparing, you just need to constantly be looking for clues and, and trying to flesh out that character and make them much more rounded um, in order to sort of tell, tell the story, you know, because it's a story. We're the storytellers. We need to tell the story and be true to that. Yeah. Has, has there been a role where that has been more difficult for you? Um, let me try and think. Oh my gosh. To, um, in terms of... To find an identity for this yeah. character. I think there are certain ones where you have to work harder, you know, and there are others where it's just all there on a plate. You know, you kind of go, oh, right, okay. My, the writer's given me everything, you know, that's not, and, and, and sometimes, you know, you'll be kind of, you will be governed, the writer will go, this is how we want it, they will, mm. how we want it played, so you have to sort of adhere to that, um, I think in terms of what's been difficult, I don't know, I think, I think, um, like for instance, I suppose earlier, things like, recent things that I've done, maybe, um, Revlon Girl was something that was, so beautifully written that you know the character was there but I had to then bring to the table other things and emotional things mm. and, and, and things like that so I think in rehearsing that that was difficult um, emotionally for me mm. personally but um, but I think as far as the character was concerned it was, she was just it was beautifully written and it made life so much easier to just play that part you know just a beautiful beautiful part to play i'd like to talk about revlon girl next if that's okay it's um what was your kind of first impression when you read the play for the first time um i'll go back a little bit further if that's all right yeah that's fine um, yeah in in terms of getting that phone call from maxine evans the director of revlon girl first of all and she'd rung me to say, um, Neil, who's the writer, Neil Docking, who's her husband, said, she said to me, Neil has written a play and he would love you to be in it. And I went, oh my gosh, you know, any actor getting the call of, you know, oh yes, please, not, yeah. not, not even knowing what it is. You know, oh my God, that'd be amazing. Now, I hold both of them in huge respect because, you know, they're old friends of mine as well. We were both in West London Theatre together. Uh, or three of us rather, Neil, myself and Maxine, so they're good friends of mine and they are incredibly talented and for me, anything that they touch turns to gold. Fact. So I thought I would love to be part of, yeah, I'd love to. She went, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute. Let me tell you what it's about. It's about Aberfan and you would be playing one of the bereaved mothers. I went, okay. And, you know, I suppose a lot of people do know me and they know my circumstances and they know that I have, you know, myself and my husband, we lost a little boy, you know, um, it'll be eight years now. So given that fact, 
Maxine was really kind of aware that maybe it might be something that I wouldn't want to do or couldn't do. But um, so she said, you know, you don't have to give me an answer now. Go away, think about it and give me a call back. And I said, I don't need to think about it. I don't need to think about it at all. I'm in. I want to do it. Mm. And, and that came from something where you go, where your job actually is kind of also giving back as well or doing something that is for the good of lots of people, you know. And for me, it was kind of doing it for, yes, all those Abavan mothers who had lost their child in such horrific tragedy, um, but also it was for every mother that had ever lost a child or, or for anyone who's ever grieved anyone, not just a child, a parent, a uh, a sibling, um, you know, whatever form that was in, you know, it was, it was something that I thought was very important, and I kind of knew it would be a very important piece of theatre. So you, you could feel some, even the first reading of it, you felt the power that it held? Yeah, I think as soon as it came through, um, they emailed me the draft of it, and I read it, and I thought, this is... This is really special, and 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 the first we literally we so I moved to London to do it. We did it in London first of all, and we literally um, rehearsed in Maxine and Neil's bedroom. I know that sounds weird. It wasn't a huge bedroom. They they moved all their furniture out and they turned it into a rehearsal room. And there were five six of us, um, and we only had two. Weeks to, so we had one week to rehearse and then we had to do it. And not just talking about one play, we had to do two plays. So we did Revlon Girl and we did another play called Baron. Um, and we rehearsed two plays. <laughs> and given the fact that we were living in their house, we were getting up at like eight o'clock in the morning and having breakfast and starting rehearsals at nine o'clock in the bedroom. Mad. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And not finishing till about eight o'clock at night. <laughs> it was a hot. Yeah. in the garden and sometimes we'd go down to the shed but mostly it was done in the bedroom and then we had to perform it in the um, the actor centre in London mm. did that for a week and we literally we were like rabbits in the headlamps literally going oh my god how are we going to do this how are we going to do this in this tiny small space which was very intimate and um, to just 50 people every night and I think we knew at that point that we had something really special on our hands because of the, the reaction that we got from the audience and also from us just having to go out and do that play every single night was kind of like overwhelming it was it was um we knew that we had something special did you, did you feel absolutely exhausted after each did it take a lot out of you physically um i think the rehearsals mostly took a lot out of us um you know, it was hard to just keep regurgitating those emotions over and over and over. When you're doing the performance, you're just doing it that one, that night. But it's really weird. I w what I would say is, and I know this might sound really weird to say, but actually after the end of every production, every, sh every show, I felt a, s a sense of being uplifted having done it. I know that might sound really strange because of the subject matter, but actually... The play itself, although we're kind of showing that sense of 
you know, you're, you're, you're learning about the tragedy, but also what you're learning is about communities coming together, and in particular women. Mm. But, you know, in this climate right now, you know, um, it just, what the play showed was how in, in times of tragedy, in times of, you know, sort of there being no hope, um, there is hope. And um, you can find that in some of the smallest, um, kind of smallest, simplest things that people mm-hmm. do. We're, we're realizing that right now. So it definitely, have, you know, it's kind of very. And I think that even though that play was about the Aberfan, I think what audiences took from it was that you know we should be doing those things anyway. We should be lifting each other up. We should be helping our neighbours, and we should be. You know, we should be mm. kind of investing in people and having giving people time, you know, to, to deal with situations and and um, yeah, so I think after every show it was like a whew, crikey, we've mm. just got that. How how do we do that? Wow, isn't that amazing? And then the feedback from audiences was was just that, you know, it was like wow, you know, it was Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Um, and when you were in Edinburgh doing this, that kind of fast-pacedness in the Fringe, um, had you performed at the Fringe before? No, it's my first time at Edinburgh Fringe. Um, I was, oh God, I've always wanted to do Edinburgh, always. But um, yeah, it's it's incredible experience, and but it's so intense. I mean, we didn't have a day, we did not have one day or four weeks every single day, even on Sundays, when we were seeing some theatre companies having a day off, we were like, what? I drank every single day. <laughs> I know I shouldn't believe that, but seriously, every single day I woke up and I thought, I'm not going to drink today, I won't drink today. But every single show, after every single show, somebody would go, can I get you a drink? I'd go, yeah, I'll have a gin and tonic, please. <laughs> it was so intense. We were all living together in one, one flat. All, all living together, all working together, all dealing with what we had to deal with. Yeah. And, but you know what? We we sold out after after like three days. We were on the sold out list every single day, and it was it was just intense. It was just an amazing experience. I would definitely, definitely do it again. I would do it again. I know that I I I said straight after it, I will never do that again. <laughs> but you now looking back on it, it's like childbirth. <laughs> you got yeah. But then as time goes on, you go, oh, yeah, maybe another one. You know, um, I think it's something that everyone, every actor should experience. It was just uh, the camaraderie between not just us as actors, uh, our little team, it was just through other people, meeting other people, seeing so much theatre, immersing yourself in so much culture. Yeah, yeah amazing. What, what kind of room did you have? Um, do you mean uh, the space of... In, the, yeah. yeah. Um, it was a 50-seater small I think in hindsight having sold out we could have uh, could have booked a bigger space but I think given the type of show it is that intimate space really lends to the intensity of it you know you feel like how are we dealing with this in this such a small room but um it was it was really lovely it was you know it was a great space to have you know and we you know became our home and you know I don't know whether have you been to Edinburgh before yeah yeah, once, yeah. it would only be once, but it's 
fantastic. The, the atmosphere of Lowell Festival, just yeah. things going on there, it's just an amazing experience. I found it just so much going on. It's yeah. unbelievable. There is, and it, well, you'll know then that in every single space, there is a show after another show, but then you've got literally 15 minutes to, you know, the, the, the show before you to get off the stage, yeah. set set down, and then you've got, within that 15 minutes as well, you've got to get on and put your set up, and so you're, so there's hardly any dress rehearsal, dressing rooms, you know, literally it was like a room full of other people's sets and costumes and so you're in a small tight space putting on your wigs and doing your makeup and while well, there's another show going on over there and so it's quite overwhelming but once you get used to it it was kind of it was quite it was it was, it was yeah a lot of fun. yeah a lot of fun. Um, you've done quite a bit of Shakespeare over the years um what do you enjoy about classical texts and you know how do you, again, how do you approach plays that are 500 years old as opposed to contemporary texts? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's just about, I love Shakespeare, by the way. I absolutely love um, I, I think my 16, 17-year-old self would, would not have said that, you know, because I think when you're, when you're having to read Shakespeare at a, you know, an educational time, you know, you're like, I don't get it, I just don't get it, it doesn't, you know, but I think Shakespeare is to be seen and not read, you know, it's it's only when you see really good, Shakespeare done really good, is when you kind of, um, you really appreciate it, and I think um, when approaching it, it's about not going, seeing all the words, because there's just so many of them, it's about going, okay, I'm going to, I have to decode this, mm. you know, I have to decode it, and you know, let's face it, you know, it was written, as, you know, four or five hundred years ago, you know, it's, language has evolved, you know, um, and I'm sure in four to five hundred years time from now, people will be looking back at the way we text speak, and yeah. you know, going, lol, I don't get it, what does lol mean, what were they talking about, what are they saying, you know, and, and it's just evolved, so therefore we just have to kind of look back at it and go, what, what is he trying to say here? what is happening in this scene and what is and I think that and for me I kind of enjoyed kind of decoding learning and there's something about Shakespeare when you're learning you know certain speeches they stay in your head more than mm. any modern day any modern day sort of play sometimes I finish a play uh, a modern day play and you go and then a week later you go back to that speech you go oh, I, can't, I can't remember it what was that <laughs> But I don't know, with Shakespeare, it seems to stay embedded, you know, because you, you're learning that rhythm to a degree, but then then you then you try and get out of the rhythm a little bit to make it your own and free yourself up and make it sound, you know, sort of um, normal, you know, as if you're sort mm. of speaking normally to somebody. But it's, yeah, I've done quite a few um, lovely roles, you know, that um, I'm really proud of, really. So, yeah. When you're looking at the text, do you try and create a translation for yourself so that you know the intention of each line? Do you know what sometimes I do with some certain speech speeches, and certainly when you've got a massive big block of speech, you know, I try to put myself put myself into that character situation in the 
you know, the here and now, and kind of think about the kind of um, latent, you know, of, of what would they be saying if it was modern speech? Um, and obviously, there's loads and loads of you know books out there that have already done that and done it for you. But I think if you can put it in your own head and your own um, way of speaking and feeling, then it does help when you actually go back to the actual text. So yeah. I agree. I just I was a part of a project end of last year and beginning of this year uh, with the WMC uh, looking at um, Hamlet and putting it in a modern context yeah. and it was fascinating to kind of get it up on its feet because in school when you're reading these plays they, they don't seem like plays they seem like academic text and I've spoken about this before in the podcast but I think first to make Shakespeare relevant to everyone not just kids we have to the the intellectualize these plays because they're yeah. meant to be performed they're meant to be acted out this is it you know i mean i've you know i i also have a little um drama group jamba drama you know and um they're four to eight year olds so um i adapted um midsummer night's dream for them right and just literally scaled it all the way down you know to meet their language so it was kind of like, you know, um, Hermia or um, saying, you know, I don't want to marry Lysander. You know, don't want, you know, um, you know, don't even like him. You know, kind of like, but get them to sort of, you know, um, get them to get them interested, get them to enjoy, get them to find the fun in Shakespeare. And then when they finally come round to having to look at it maybe in some English or drama they won't be so frightened of it because they've understood that it's fun and it's not as scary as you thought it might have been you know Um, and and I think yeah it's just kind of just just sort of I don't know just kind of putting it into their their way of thinking is important definitely that should be done more I want to talk about writing stars for a bit now. Um, initially, how how did you become artistic director of writing stars? Um, I was I was actually approached by a friend of mine who now lives in Estragonite, and she said that there's a theatre company in Swansea looking for um, somebody to take it over because the the existing directors are leaving and if they leave and they don't have anyone then the group is literally going to disband and it, it won't carry on and I said oh that's interesting not actually knowing that it was a disability theatre company and um, so I did a little bit more research and then I chatted with um, one of the, the, the committee members and she said just look just I, and explained look I've never actually worked with disabilities before I don't know what I'm doing right. he said come and have a look just come along to one of our rehearsals and at the time I was doing jamba drama with a friend of mine Nick Woodrow and I said to Nick do you fancy coming with me and we'll have a little look what this what's going on and as we walked in the room and I know you know this Karen because they're just the most remarkable group literally anybody that's new that walks in that room is just bombarded with love and affection and who are you who are you yeah 
was yawning. What, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Oh my God, I felt a sense of, whoa, this is an incredible group. And I said, I'm just, just coming to have a little look, just having a little look. And I sat in the rehearsal and I watched them and I just thought, oh my God, I can do something soon. Yeah. They're amazing. And then they invited me along to their first uh, the show that they were doing. Right. And I watched the show. And I thought, oh, God, i got to get my hands on this. I've got to change this. I've got to do things with this group. There's so much more to them that, than just this. Uh, uh, don't get me wrong, they were doing amazing stuff. Incredible stuff. Mm. Absolutely incredible stuff. But I just thought, I can challenge them even more than this. I can do more than this with them. And, um, and so I just said yes. I was scared, I'll be honest with you. I didn't know what I was doing. But... Um, I knew I could, I, I, I felt like a real pull, a real pull. It was like a, you know, without being too yeah. dramatic, a calling. It was like a calling mm. that I had, had to do Because yeah. if you didn't do it, who else was going to do it? Was it that kind of thing? Well, um, no, I, I wasn't doing it for that reason. I wasn't doing it because I thought, oh, if I don't do it, then nobody will do it. I was doing it because I thought, they're incredible. I just, the, I think... They are. changed since you became AD? Um, yeah, I think I've I think I've done some lovely changes. I think I've done, I've changed that changed a lot. I've introduced a lot of what I want to do is bring what I have in, in my world as being a professional actor and I wanted to bring that into their setting. I treat them, every single one of them, as if they are professional actors. Because in my mind they are professional. Yeah. And we contain those standards of professionalism. So the first thing I did was I said we're not doing it in community centres anymore. We're going into theatres. And so I think it was educating not just the students in you know and, and doing things. It was educating the committee. It was also educating the parents and mm -hmm. the audiences that came to see them. You know, um, and it was kind of like you know in having programmes and paying for your tickets through, you know, a box office and having that experience of coming into a theatre and, and walking through that, the, you know, that experience of walking through the theatre doors and the set is there waiting, you know, the, you've got a play, playing list of music that's playing in the background and proper lighting and yeah. costumes and, you know, and and bring all that to, to this group. And I think, I think it's made a world of difference to them but also challenging them in other ways of having a script, writing a script and having a script, getting them to highlight their words, getting them to learn their words. Because I, I had to learn in those things as well, in as much as changing the font of the script, making mm -hmm. it bigger, sometimes putting it in different different sort of colours and for different, you know, I thought, well, okay, there, there's your script but some of them couldn't read it, or some of them worked in different ways. Some were quite happy to go off script because they couldn't learn it, and others were quite literal and going, no, she didn't say that. She yeah. was supposed this, she didn't say it. You know, and so learning that everybody's different. And 
and so I had to I had to kind of learn that every single member we've got thirty six of them in the core group are all of different abilities and have different ways of of working. So that was a challenge for me as well. And that is the case generally that everyone, regardless of disability, has a different way of working, a different process. But I guess it's even more important with Rising Stars. Uh, so when you're writing plays for Rising Stars, are there things that you take into account when you start to write a play for Rising Stars? saying um, uh, whatever's written and um, 
and think, oh, that's a bit of a, that's too, too big a word for um, so-and-so to say, or let's, let, let's scale it down, you know? So the play will have been cast before you have a draft of the script? There was the Mumbles mob, and there was the Town Hill yeah. Town. You know, so you've got two groups that we know are two groups, and then you've got another group which is people that were entertainers. And they're all the people that are really good at dancing and singing and doing all the wonderful things. And there's another group who were the police and um, like Keystone Cops type thing. Okay. Um, but they they're all got funny bones and all really funny and very comedic. And so we kind of split them into different groups of different abilities and knowing. We know their strengths, having worked with them for so long, and um, and so I think it was kind of just a, a case of both of us knowing, you know, what to write for and and who to write for. Yeah. Fab. Um. What What are you most proud of? Uh, for rising stars. Yeah. single time we've done it you know and uh, there are times when we're in rehearsals right up to the last rehearsal I'm going oh my god how is this going <laughs> is it going to be okay you know, I'm fretting I'm fretting yeah. and single time they step up on that stage they pull it out the back they are incredible they entertain they make you laugh they make you cry they they give an overwhelming experience and I think every single audience member takes away something from it something remarkable and is moved by it so I'm I'm incredibly proud of every single show we've ever done but I think mostly I'm I'm just proud of um, how we're, they're learning to change they're learning to evolve they're learning to to run with every single thing every challenge that we throw at them um, you know I have great plans for it we've, we've started a youth theatre now mm. you know a youth theatre and that's growing um, and it's not just my you know we've Beck, um, Rebecca Matthews, she's taken that on board. She does, she runs the youth theatre yeah. now. I'd like to then make a senior group, which will be more of a mentor group, which will take on probably more challenging plays and maybe go into schools and do yeah. workshops and highlight, um, you know, um, people with disability um, in in sort of schools and and. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I've got lots of ideas, so I. And with every change, they they're growing, you know, and I yeah. I'm proud of of, of that fact. Fab. Um, can we talk about bruises? You were you won the script slam from Sarah Simpson in Um, uh, how? Why did you decide to start writing that play? Um, but that monologue, I view as my monologue. 
wrote it, you know, but I've used it, you know, I've auditioned with it. Um, and in fact, when I auditioned for Terry Hans at Theatre Cloyd, when I did Under Milk Wood, yeah. uh, gosh, probably about 18 years ago, such a long time ago, um, I, would, I obviously had to prepare a classic and a modern. Obviously, I did my Shakespeare, um, I did a Shakespeare, and in my modern, I used my piece. And and I got in, you know, and I was like, oh, okay. Because I was like, oh, that's quite good, isn't it? You know, uh, my own, I didn't say who'd written it, I just, you know, just delivered it. But, um, so that piece of dialogue has been in my head for such a long, long time. It's just a monologue. And I just thought, well, what if that monologue was expanded and was made into a whole play and centred around this character who I then changed from being Tracy to Kathy? Um, and and that's it just literally been playing in my head for a long time and obviously script slam was down at the Pontadami Arts Centre yeah. and I had been um, an actor you know doing some of the, the script work. Also I'd sat on the sat on a bit of the judging panel one night, but then I stepped away from it for a while because I was doing other things. Yeah. And Angie Dickinson at the Arts Centre approached me and said, Well, why don't you write something? And I thought, oh, well, I have got something. And so I just put, you know, finger to keyboard and started writing away, and, and and it just kind of it just came, it just it just you know it's one of those things I don't know whether you get this because I know you write a lot, you know you're an amazing writer, you know sometimes you don't know where it came from, it just comes from somewhere. I I can't describe where I get my ideas from. I don't know what like, they just happen for me. And I start writing, and then a few weeks later, it's a play. That yeah. that's what happens to me, and I know that might sound pretentious, but that's I can't describe how I write a play. It just kind of happens yeah. for me. Yeah. Well, they say that, don't they? Just don't stop. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Keep going. And it doesn't matter if you you know don't linger on one word or or one no. sentence. You know, keep going, keep going, and then re-look at it, and and then you know, and I think I all you know when when I. I submitted it. It was probably a really scary thing to do, submitting something. Um, yeah. And then I, I was told that I got through to like the last 25, and then I sort of got through the last four. And then I actually, I was in, where was I? I think I was in, I was in Edinburgh. No, I wasn't in Edinburgh. Oh, I was in Aberystwyth when I found out that I'd won. Because <laughs> I couldn't be there. Um, and uh, obviously it was being back at the art centre yeah. and I was told that I'd won after the doing Revlon Girl I came out and they went oh, just to let you know you're what? I was like oh my god drinks are all me it's an amazing feeling isn't it because you do I um I my script is being worked on at the moment with Derek and Lou at the art centre we were meant to be having rehearsals this week but they haven't happened and it's an amazing feeling when you get that email to say, oh, they actually picked me. Yeah, it's, it's odd, isn't it? And you always yeah. you have this, you know, which I have quite a lot, and I know a lot of artists have it, you know, this kind of, you know, uh, this, what's the word? Um, I'm not worthy, you know, I'm going to get found out. What's yeah. Syndrome. syndrome. Compost. Imposter syndrome. <laughs> not compost. Not compost syndrome. <laughs> 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 Imposter syndrome. 
Yeah. And I'm, I'm just a complete big phony, and and you know, you know, and and constantly berating yourself or beating yourself up in your mind, going, I bet they just did it because they felt sorry for me or something yeah. like that, you know. But actually, so but then I think it takes a long time for you to go. No, 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 you you did that. That's okay. You can pat yourself on the back for that. That's okay. Yeah. And what was the uh, development process like with Lou and Derek? Yeah, because yeah, um, Louise Osborne was my mentor. Um, yeah. So that's what you get. That's what your, your prize. Yeah. If you get a mentor, the amazing, incredible Louise. She's fab. She's so oh. great to work with. And she gives such honest feedback, I've found. Was yeah. she like yeah. that with you? Yeah, to a fault. You know, sometimes the honesty was like, so I've got to go back and redo it, have I? Yeah. Oh God, that was just, you know, and I went, I found the process um, quite hard actually. And I think I probably wrote about six or seven versions of the same piece. You know, it was a, to begin with, it was a one woman piece, you know, and with her talking about her son, but um, then, and the son and the, the um, her ex, partner mm. but then all of a sudden it it I some at one point somebody in the feedback at script Sam had said it would have been nice to have seen the son or have to have heard from the ex-partner so I was like oh, okay I need to bring them in then and 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 so it was a three-hander then and then I took them back out again and then I then I changed Kathy to a man and right. it was it was a man and then he was speaking and I sent that to Louise and then she said that's amazing. Keep going with this. Right. And then it, it changed, and I changed it back. And then she went, "Oh gosh, actually, this is much better. Keep going with this." So it was kind of like, "Oh gosh, I don't know where I am." And that wasn't her fault. That was my fault. And then in the end, it, it turned out to be a two-hander. Right. And and um, and that's what I kind of settled on, really, because of course it was a deadline. Because you, the other thing you get in your prize package is you get a an R&D, you know, yeah. with actors and director and, and a piece to perform. So um, I had a deadline, so I had to go with it. And um, yeah. so, yeah, ended up being a two-hander. Are you happy with the way it turned out? Yeah, I think this, you know, I think it's, I'd still probably go back and do some rework on it. Um, you know, I don't, I think there's always room for improvement in anything you do, however good you think it is. Yeah. I wish I'd done that, or why didn't I say that? Or you know, there's always going to be that element of it. Um, but um, yeah, it's um, it was an, a very strange process. You know, as an actor, you can you know you when you perform and somebody sees it, they they you know, the audience will go, yeah, I didn't like it, and go, yeah, script wasn't that great, was it? <laughs> when you're the writer, when you're the writer, oh. <laughs> you've got nowhere to hide. It's like, and um, um, you're in that room and people are saying, oh, well, this scene doesn't work, this line doesn't work. And that's you. That's no one else's responsibility. That's you. And that's, that's a hard pill to swallow, you know. It's, it's really tough to, to think, you know, you're totally exposed to the world. And people are going, oh, that's, that's going on in her head. She, that was going on in her head and she put to paper. That's... She's, she's crazy, or she's mad, or what was she thinking, you know, um, yeah. or, you know, it's so, it's, yeah, it, there's nowhere to, to hide, and I found that experience oh, quite, um, 
overwhelming, really. Mm. It's, it's, you know, you're putting your baby out there for show, aren't you? Yes. You know, and then people start ripping your baby apart. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's something you've just got to kind of not ignore but develop a coping mechanism for. That's where the, that's where the second, third, fourth layer of skin comes to play, you know. Definitely. I think you know you just have to learn to to um to to be to to kind of put up with rejection or to put up with you know criticism, you know, and yeah. and on board and not be too defensive about it. Finally, um, I'd like um, to ask you if you could give one piece of of advice to someone starting out in the industry, what would you say? Um, Someone starting out in the industry, I think probably what was said is to actually don't be too disheartened um, when it comes to rejection. You know, it's a really tough, tough world out there. It really is in the acting world, um, and um, and everybody wants to, everybody wants to get that job. You know, but there are times when you're just not right for the job. That's that's just the way it is. You know, there's there's a, there's one tip that I was given a long, long time ago is before you go into that audition, um, is to kind of just say in your mind, I'm here to solve your problem. I'm here to solve the problem. Don't say it out loud. Don't say it in your head. Because they want you to be that person that they're looking for. They want you to walk in that room and be that character. Um, because that means their, their job is done. They, they, you know, they've got their, their person, they can go home. That's fine, they've got it. Um, so I think you know if some, there are some, some roles that you're just not right for. So don't be disheartened and don't beat yourself up if you don't get that job. It's just, sometimes it's just luck of a draw and you were just going to start again. So I think it's just about enjoying that process of auditioning. Enjoy the day. Enjoy getting yourself ready and preparing yourself and researching and use it as a, as a way of learning. You know, um, learn about where you went wrong. Learn about where you went right and maybe that might help again. Maybe yeah. it won't. You know, I think you just—I think just be yourself as well. Don't try to be somebody else. Um, just, just be you. I think that's what people want in the room as well when you're auditioning. Um, you know, from since my day, a long time ago when I started out, it has changed so much. You know, um, there wasn't all this. You know, digital self taping, and I'm having to learn all that now. You know, we would have to get our photos printed out eight by ten. You know, pay for somebody to get them to get a covering letter, send it out. You know, in in proper envelopes at hardback. And, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it was it that was tough. You know, and sending there was only one casting director in Wales at the time, Gary Howe. You know, a long time ago. You know, he was the guy. Um, God rest his soul, because Gary's not with us these days either, mm-hmm. you know, and it was incredible. Um, there wasn't, I think there was only two agencies in, in um, no, I think there was only one agency in, in Wales, and that was wow. talent when I first started out. So it was, it was really, really tough then. It's tougher now, I think, because there are just hundreds of them, you know, just everywhere. Yeah. Um, and, um, 
yourself. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.